0: Patrick Dempsey finds out the true cost of popularity.
1: And Shelley Long has an unfortunate date with a South Korean chicken ball. Coming up next on Out of Touchstone. Uh-oh. Uh, another great song from 1987, Dancing With Myself by Billy Idol. I chose that song because, as we were going to talk about with our first movie, it's all about nerds, and I imagine that many of the nerds in Can't Buy Me Love were probably dancing with themselves at a lot of those high school parties. Chad, did you have to dance with yourself at some high school or junior high school parties?
0: I don't think that's what that song is really
1: about. Yes, it is, Chad. Yes, it is.
0: Yeah, I remember high school dances and yeah i was in the corner a lot of the time
1: me and i picture george mcfly you know before yeah. lorraine shows oh, up yeah. right you just kind of dancing there uh yes. yeah and i
0: i mean i know you're about to introduce this this movie but i i'm going to throw out a disclaimer to the audience right now this is one of my favorite movies of all time so this could be a five-hour episode if it's not you can bet there are going to be cutting room floor excerpts that I will secretly release and leak to the media afterwards.
1: Mm-hmm. This might be one of the first episodes where we're actually going to have to put like time code in the description, <laughs> so you can say this is the third part of our discussion yeah. and the fourth part of this because uh, it's such a it's such a good movie. Uh, I don't even want to waste any more time. Uh, like I said, we 1987 has been a, a great year for Touchstone so far, and I think they hit a home hit a home run with this. Next movie that's going to begin our episode uh, It was released on August 14th of 1987.
0: It's Can't Buy Me Love.
2: I think that's Ronald Keller. Didn't you like him to mow our lawn? Ronald's over in No Man's Land, and he's still alive. He's
1: going from totally geek,
2: totally chic, Let's dance!
1: to totally
2: out of control. I have moves. All I ever did was think about you. Say yourself.
1: Don't change please. Me change? Never. It's the comedy that proves a thousand dollars can buy popularity, but it can't buy me love.
2: It's such a it's such a heartbreaker.
1: I always like to look back at the director. Usually it's where it starts or or a script, one or the other. Um, For this particular feature, it was directed by a gentleman named Steve Rash. And I read that he had grown up in Texas. He studied film at the University of Texas. And he started out shooting live sporting events before he moved on to music videos in their early form, like in the late 70s, you know. Um, His first feature was a, A Total Labor of Love. It's the Buddy Holly story starring Gary Busey. And I think I'd read that... That the Buddy Holly story was set up at at one studio, and Gary Busey was supposed to have been the drummer in the film, and then Steve Rash wanted to do the feature, and they said, "Well, we can't. There's already another movie going." And then that fell through, and Steve Rash went to Gary Busey and was like, "Why don't you be Buddy Holly?" And then that 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 was that became huge. Gary Busey got an Oscar nomination. Uh, unfortunately, a few years later, Steve Rash made another movie, which was called Under the Rainbow, um, a, a notorious flop. Chad, you're familiar with that a, film? A critically.
0: Overlooked film. Such, I mean, come on. You have Carrie Fisher coming off of Empire Strikes Back. You have Andy Garcia making his debut, I believe.
1: Is it really? Chevy Chase, I remember. You have Chevy Chase coming
0: off of whatever Chevy Caddyshack was probably big in Saturday Night Live. And then you have a cast. Well, I don't really know how I'm supposed to refer to them these days. Um, Little people? Munchkins. (laughs) It was all about... Well, they were literally the Munchkins, the right? The Munchkins from, from Wizard of Oz. And yeah. Billy Barty is one of them, who is one of the greatest little people actors of all time. Yeah. It'll be a wizard, uh, Mad Mardigan. You'll see. That wasn't his line, but he, that's who Willow says it to.
1: And Willow, yeah. I, You know, the funny thing is, I never even heard of Under the Rainbow, and I vividly remember when Comedy Central first started. It was called the Comedy Channel. This would have been, I, th- I believe, 1989. And they would show a lot of, like, stand-up clips, uh, just random stuff like that. And then they would have movies. And they, I, I was watching this movie one day, and I'm like, okay, why is Carrie Fisher in her underwear running around a hotel with a bunch of little people? And and I, I they showed it so many times that I was able to watch it in bits and pieces before I eventually saw it from beginning to end. And, I mean... Yeah, it, it's sort of one of the more notorious films of, of Hollywood cinema. Yeah, it's one that I know I watched several times
0: as a kid, and probably have not seen in a good thirty years. But I want to go back and rewatch it. But I, yeah, for some reason, I can never find it streaming anywhere.
1: Do they not have? And they don't have screens around town either. It seems no, like right. Yeah,
0: that movie is been buried. And uh, jumping ahead, you know, we talk about personal touches or our own um,
1: connections. Connections. With those people. That's yeah. the word I'm
0: looking for. Uh, you and I live. Within walking distance of the Culver Hotel, which is the hotel that the little people stayed at. That's true. Um, So, that has nothing to do with Can't Buy Me Love, but
1: it's always fun to drop that in little factoids under the Um, rainbow the so but apparently it was i think six years before steve rash gets this job the only thing i can think of i don't see anything in his in his bio i'm assuming music videos must have filled the void because the name does sound familiar and at that time 1981 up until 1987 i mean that would have been a gold mine for music video time they would have been looking for directors of a guy who had been doing stuff in the 70s um well, we got to get a leading man, so Patrick Dempsey is the, the one they go with. He's got limited screen credits. His film debut was Heaven Help Us in 1985, if that movie sounds familiar. We did briefly discuss it because it was directed by Michael Dinner, who also directed Offbeat for mm. Touchdown. Um, he played Mike Damone in the Fast Times TV series. I, I don't remember that at all either. I remember
0: the TV show, but no, I don't remember him playing that role. Yeah,
1: and Meatballs 3. And then yeah. he did a movie called In the Mood, and as I learned later in watching the the really great Can't Buy Me Love Q&A that Chad and I attended a few years ago, the whole video's up on YouTube, um, they said that In the Mood was shot first, and then when Can't Buy Me Love was finished with production, the, pro- the producers of In the Mood held it and said, let's release it after Can't Buy Me Love because to kind of capitalize on Patrick Dempsey's star. Like They knew that was going to be a, a bigger movie, and I, I believe it's Max Perlick. Who plays no. one of his nerdy friends in Can I Me Love? He's Who's also fantastic. He's Never also, an, done. He's also an in the mood. He's got like a he has one quick scene cameo and it's a scene with Patrick Dempsey as well. Um, in nineteen eighty six he starred in a Disney TV movie, Patrick Dempsey, called A Fighting Choice. And he plays a teenager with epilepsy who sues his parents for emancipation so that he can undergo a controversial surgery. Oh, uh, that
0: screams Disney.
1: <laughs> That just sounds like the kind... I mean, honestly, sounds like the, the kind of thing that they would have maybe done for those those Wonderful old of Disney or Disney Sunday movies. Um, Bo Bridges plays his father, and also one of the other co-stars of the film, Daniel Von Zernick. Learned something new. And then I saw something where somebody said that there's an episode of Grey's Anatomy where... He has to perform a surgery, a similar surgery on somebody and I, I try to do some research like I always do. Whenever I see somebody throw a comment out there, I'll do my digging. I couldn't find anything specifically that reference I mean obviously you know, Patrick Dempsey performed some surgeries on Grey's Anatomy. I, I you you, know, and
0: you didn't go back and watch episodes of Grey's Anatomy to find out? I I, I uh, you I well, there's only a few. Of them, I do not right? blame you.
1: There's only, it's only been on for a couple seasons, yeah, I believe. That no, show. I right. hope it's. one uh,
0: episode is too many, in my opinion? Uh,
1: yeah. And then, um, as far as the actress to play the to play opposite her, they said Marissa Tomei was the first choice. Mm. They were when they were casting. They began casting for the Cindy Mancini character in New York, and she was a complete unknown, but she nailed the audition. Uh, they said they also read for the part where the uh, actresses Uma Thurman and then Faith Ford, mm. who I mean I loved Murphy Brown back in the day, and Corky, she was fantastic. I was like, I think that I don't, I can't picture Faith Ford as like a teenage actress doing high school stuff. I always picture her as that young anchor yeah. from Murphy Brown. Right, and this would have
0: been like two years before a different world where Marissa Tomei got her.
1: Oh, star. was she on that show? Oh, I First totally season, forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, and so they they wind up casting Amanda Peterson again. I'm I'm sure we're going to bring this up several times in the episode. She was 15 years old when they filmed "Can't Buy Me Love." I it'd st- she yes. is so. She plays such a grown up character in this movie, and I, I love it. So all she had had was a couple of handful of TV credits, and she had been in the movie uh, Explorers with Ethan Hawke. Like I, I mm-hmm. totally forgot about her being in that movie. I, I, yeah. I can't picture that. I kind of need to watch that again. I wonder if that's streaming somewhere. Um, the last part of the cast, again, I, I, I give it up to the writer Michael Swardlick, who references a lot of these great stories in, in the uh, Q and A that he did. Um, but he said that Mark Price, who plays Skippy on Family Ties, he was cast as Ronald, and then right before the producers had met with Patrick Dempsey, and they, they, did, they, they had not drawn the contract up, and so the producers met Dempsey, they loved him, and then they went back to, and, and said, "Oh, wait, forget it, Mark Price, we're, we're out," because he didn't have, to, he wasn't tied to a contract, so it kind of worked out.
0: Yeah, and I think that worked much in their favor because this movie just overall is just really well cast, but. Yeah. Uh, I believe it's the screenwriter who mentioned that the, one of the appeals of Patrick Dempsey is he was an unknown. Mm-hmm. So he's not someone that had you have a, a opinion of going into the movie, so you buy him as a nerd right from the start. Even though Mark Price had been Skippy. I say,
1: yeah, how known was Skippy, right? Yeah. You know,
0: that was a nerd, but he'd also – I'm trying to think of their time frame. Would the, he have done Trick or Treat? Trick or
1: Treat was, I think, a couple of years
0: later, right? A couple years. Okay, yeah. I thought it was like '86 to '88 same- somewhere. There, but he plays against type yeah. as you know the loner rock, you know rock and roll kid. But Patrick Dempsey just nails this oh, performance.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean to give credit uh, to Mark Price, I'll oh, yeah. say that like. This, it's not quite. It's not quite Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future. I think Mark mm-hmm. Price would have been fine, yeah. but I don't think it would have been as great as it was. And I don't think. I don't think Mark Price twenty years later would, would have been McDreamy. Like I don't. I just. Right. I think Patrick Dempsey played the think roid better
0: with the Skippy persona already known. You would kind of probably gotten a similar nerdy character. Yeah. Whereas Patrick Dempsey was was able to create Ronald Miller as a new entity.
1: Yeah, and what's funny is we mentioned, you know, he mentioned he was in that movie In the Mood, and that movie's all about a young man who romances older women, and then he does Lover Boy a couple of years after, Can't Buy Me Love, young man. You know, uh, romancing these married women. I just, I find it funny. He's just, he plays this nerdy guy, but yet he seems to be charming in a way that women kind of must have loved him. I had an older sister who thought he was just so cute. It's so funny. You're like, literally, you know, there's this scene in the movie where you see him shirtless and he's just, he's like this scrawny kid, but yet, I don't know, kind of winning. Um, Again, we're talking about location filming in the previous episode with with Stakeout in Seattle and Adventures of Babysitting in Chicago. Can't Mind Me Live, we go back to Tucson, which was the set of one of my (laughs) favorite, the location of one of my favorite Touchdown movies, My Science Project. There's even a scene um, where they visit the airplane graveyard, the same airplane Mm -hmm. graveyard from My Science Project. Just out of curiosity, I did look it up. The airplane graveyard is not open to the public, but every year in, I believe it's in October, they do a 5K, 10K run walk. I've already told my wife and you, Chad Smart, we are doing this next year. It's a Tucson is, what, an hour and a half flight from here? Yeah. You know, October won't be unbearably hot. Maybe we can go see a minor league hockey game or something. But I would love to do just do the five k walk and just walk around this graveyard and snap some pictures and say we're the place where two different Touchstone movies were filmed. Although technically, I had I believe I read that the scene in Can't Buy Me Love where they're walking around and they get in the helicopter mm-hmm. and stuff that was actually done at another place that was another airplane junkyard which has since been closed down. Like, maybe they couldn't get onto the actual base, but I'm going to pretend it's that same base. Same base. Um, okay, so... Well, no, go ahead. And I'm going to say...
0: Uh, <clears throat> being set in Tucson, too, one of the stories I like is the character of Ronald Miller. His whole persona is he's a lawn boy. He mows yards. And the writer uh, mentioned in that Q&A that you referenced that they got to Tucson... Nobody has lawns. Yeah. So the only lawn that exists in Tucson was the lawn that they made in front of Cindy Mancini's house for this movie.
1: And I saw, I believe that that house is like a it's like a clubhouse that's attached to a I don't know, community center or a country club or something. Like You can you can go up to it. I mean, Chad, you lived in Tucson for a year, right? Uh, nine months. When you were a student, and I guess you yeah. didn't see any yards, I'm guessing, right? Not a whole lot. I mean, the
0: campus had... The quad, the you know, the mall, as we call it, which I grasp. But, yeah, I don't watering, try to think about it. Watering it, it constantly, my, uh, probably. I I don't think my aunt and uncle's house had a, had a lawn. So. No,
1: no. The story I always tell people is I had a friend who was going to school at the University of Arizona. And um, I, when I was driving from St. Louis to Los Angeles when I moved out here, I went to stay with him one night. I parked the car, and when I opened the car door and I got out, I walked into a cactus. There was a, the cactus was that close to the driveway and I'm like, this is, this is Arizona. That's kind of what it is. Um, okay. So we got to get into the movie. The, what I love about this movie. Okay. We, we both spoilers. We both absolutely love this movie. Uh, The characters are so perfectly set up, I think, before the credits are even over. You get a feel for who Ronald is, who Cindy is, and just where their persona, where they, where their status is at the school. Like you see Cindy come up with all of her friends, and they've got, they're they're clearly the cool girls, and he's this nerdy guy riding the lawnmower. And I know, I mean, obviously you got the great Beatles song kicking it all off, and I think to just, I love that song, and I love how it's used in the movie. But when you look at how, what are we, Two, three minutes into this movie The movie's only 94 minutes long And yet we already know who everybody is As we first get started
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm mean, i going back to the cast And I know we'll touch on them more in depth here in, in a few minutes But the first scene with Ronald And then his, his best friend, Kenneth, Kenneth The great Courtney Gaines One of my favorite ca- character actors of all time And, yeah, you just see that relationship between them and and they set up in basic dialogue about, you know, how it's their senior year. It's the last hurrah they want to go out. You know, Ronald wants to go out on top. He's tired of being kind of in the shadows, if you will. So this movie is just so perfectly set up.
1: Yeah. And then, like you said, I mean, you mentioned, okay, I'll take take a, a demerit for it again. You talk about Courtney Gaines and that character. I did make a note that said I thought his nerdy friends were a little too nerdy. But again, I mean, I knew those people when I was in school. I, I, I'm not going to try to pretend that I wasn't one of them. But I mean, I wasn't exactly that. But I mean, I definitely, you know, spent had a lot of Saturday nights spent the same way they were spending. Maybe not with poker, but with video games, I guess.
0: The good, a good brew, a good A and W,
1: good uh, uh, Jolt Cola or something along those lines. Uh, and then, like I said, you know, Seth Green plays the little brother, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I found him kind of annoying. I, I cheap comic relief in in a way. To kind of take you away from... I you, every, felt like every scene with Seth Green, you're just like, can we just get back to Cindy and, and Ronald and, and that whole thing with the high school high schoolers?
0: Yeah, Seth Green's character is mainly there just to kind of drive along, you know, what's going on with Ronald. And kind of like that conduit, kind of... He's kind of a conduit between the parents and Ronald. Like, yeah. They're, they seem oblivious. Uh, I said so they, they remind me a lot of the parents from Better Off Dead without being as wacky. But... Yeah, he's just there to kind of be like, "What's up with my brother?"
1: Yeah, and like you alluded to, it, we mentioned at 94 minutes, the pacing is just—it's so perfect. It's lightning quick. Yeah. The, the plot seems natural. It's not incredibly rushed. You know, I mean, we, the the setup is just okay. Here, here, I need a thousand dollars. Hey, I got a thousand dollars. I I, I kind of like you. I saw you at the mall. Yeah. I'm gonna. This is my chance at popularity. And you know, what, what I thought was interesting, and it, it raises a good question. Something my wife brought up was, do you think? He really liked her, like because. Do you think he paid the money because he wanted to be popular, or because he liked her? And that, and it had me questioning him because I just assumed, oh yeah, like you know the first first scene's got a crush on her, but it's like. Her big problem with the movie was that she felt like he only wanted her after he lost his popularity, mm-hmm. and, and so you're like, no, that that does ring a good point because. You know it's it's set up as like this romantic comedy, but at the same time. You're like, I don't know. Does he really want to be her boyfriend, or does he just want to use her for that popularity?
0: Well, that, that, wow, I had not thought of that. Yeah, that. exactly. And I, right. And, and thinking about it now, in you know, ten seconds to make a comment on it, I'm going to say that he he may have had a crush, but he never. I don't think he ever thought he actually stood a chance of yeah. dating her, and and because she's still technically with Bobby, you know, he might be off to college and an un, underdeveloped character that's only there to push the plot forward at times but you can see like even in the scene where they're you know she wants to discuss the fact that she's getting feelings for him he's all just about like okay how are we going to break up he's like totally oblivious to the feelings that she's getting because to him it's all hey i'm just using you to get popular and now that i've got that let's go our separate ways and and not in a bad way like he didn't Mm -hmm. i don't think he Wanted to, you know, toss her aside, but he just, to him, they had a contract. The contract's up.
1: Let's move on. Yeah, and maybe it's just his his element of being a nice guy, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know how he doesn't know how to behave around women that are that popular or that attractive. I mean, I do feel that when, when they do start dating, it does seem very genuine, you know, even though it is you know, under false pretenses, it does seem, it's heartfelt and it's natural. And, and, but the problem is it's, it becomes genuine, like just as it's, as it's ending. Like you mentioned, there's that, uh, there's the great clip where they're, they kind of have to establish how they're going to break up.
0: You know, I just mentioned it, but I, one of the things rewatching this movie that kind of struck me is they're supposed to be dating for a month, Mm -hmm. but technically Cindy is still with Bobby and her friends will ask her, Oh, have you not heard from Bobby or, you know, what's Bobby doing? So I don't know why the friends wouldn't be questioning her more. Like, yeah. hey, what's up with Bobby? And then even after they break up, you see her with another college guy.
1: Yeah. And it's like... That guy, that, that college guy seemed really forced to know. I didn't, yeah. I didn't understand what that was all about. Because, again, like you said, she should still have been with Bobby. And
0: I think it, it was just to give us scenes with her on the outside of the popularity circle. Yeah. And and, and being able to see how her friends are reacting and see that Patrick Dempsey was correct. Like, as she made him popular and her friends just took to him with no question asked.
1: Yeah, and what was and what was so funny and and also realistic is that Cindy becomes immediately jealous of all of her girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why do you care? You were just doing this for the for the money. You have Bobby and this other random college yeah. guy. But you know, I know we talked about it on a, a previous episode. The idea of of uh, adults behaving like children, like in Tin Men. And whereas with this one, the the childish behavior is, it makes perfect sense. I, I really think they change quickly and realistically, you know, like, did you think, I think I've asked you this off air, but did you think that Kenneth was being unfair in the fact that he was so upset that Bobby was, or that... That Ronald is spending so much time with Cindy because you know Kenneth if he had was mm-hmm. in the same situation like if it had come up naturally without the money I'm sure that you know you guys ditch their friends for girls all the time I did it, it when I was in school right
0: yeah and I'm gonna give you the same answer that I gave you before because it's the only chance I think in this entire series of of podcasts that we do that I will be able to reference the Jonas Brothers but in their documentary Chasing Happiness the brothers are sitting down and they and Nick or sorry Joe who's just gotten married to Sophie. Turner, I believe from Game of Thrones is talking to Kevin. He's like, Hey, you know, when you started dating his now wife and you were talking to her all the time, we felt like you weren't dedicated to the band. But now that I'm, you know, in this relationship, I, I would do whatever I could to get five more minutes with her. So yes, if you're, it's natural. And if it's the friend, you know, especially in this situation with like the nerdy friends who aren't used to having girlfriends, you probably don't understand what Ronald's going through, but then I do think Ronald did kind of disassociate himself a little too much, yeah, like you know there should be especially since they're all in class together, like could be some give and take, but it when because the movie is only ninety five minutes, you have to show Ronald being the complete jerk yeah. for his redemption at the end.
1: Yeah, and like I said, for as realistic as it is, the one thing I will say that's unrealistic is I hate the way that high school parties are depicted on film sometimes. <laughs> and I know this back in the 80s. Like, I mean, I went to, I started high school in 1989. You started high school... 87? 87, right? And so I'm like, I never... I mean, not that I was... I mean, I never was cool enough to get invited to those yeah. parties, but I never even knew about other people having those parties. I mean, are, are people's parents always out of town? Like, I don't get In the it. 80s, they were a lot. The, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember... Not going to high school party. I mean, we had, like, high school dances or um, my, like, freshman and sophomore years, we had a local high school band or, you know, kids that had formed a band and would play the Legion Hall. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, I'd heard about older students
1: having parties like out in the woods. but yeah.
0: not nothing at home, and, and yeah, I wasn't cool enough, so I was home dancing with myself most most nights.
1: <laughs> yes, and you know, and the funny thing is, you know, if you were cool, you know what that meant? That meant you got to high five your friends. And I'm sorry, I, I could not get over how many high fives are in this movie. I don't think I've seen that many before. There's just, there's every excuse they can to, hey, Ronald, nice shoes. Boom, high five. And then Gerardo, hey, nice abs, because he <laughs> doesn't wear a shirt in the movie. You know, just high five, high five, high five again. Oh, my God. Oh, God. And then high And then they're also in high school. You know what else, is in their, what else is in their high school? Coke machine, right? I, I, like, there it is again. I, I'm telling you right now, if there's people who are devoted fans of this show, go back and watch these movies from 1987. You cannot unsee the Coke machines. They're everywhere. I, I give them credit; they're just—it's genius. Oh man, just imagine if they would have drew, uh, if Touchstone would have made Mac and me. Oh, there's so many promotional tie-ins <laughs> right there. Um, another complaint, again, I'm, we're gushing a lot about the movie mm-hmm. because we both love it, but I did think the football players were one, kind of one-dimensional. I mean, and I know it's easy to say, well, maybe those people are real life. No, I mean that's they're they're human beings yeah. as well. I mean, you you see a little bit of uh, toward the end of the movie they get. They get, I wouldn't say they're comeuppance, but they do get a little bit of depth. But for the most part, they are just kind of dumb jocks. The one's got really bad gas, you know, and the other one, like you said, it's it's Rico Suave, Gerardo, and all he's going to do is just constantly be shirtless. But, hey, if you got the abs, do it. And as you mentioned. And then
0: you also have the other jock player who is just the total jerk. mm -hmm. You know, he never took to Ronald. And then at the end, he's also the one that, they used to be the catalyst of like hey we were all friends we were all time. friends
1: yeah and then as you mentioned um i think what maybe we could have brought this movie even higher in, I, in my opinion was maybe we, we should have had more set up with bobby like we I think you mentioned it to me off the air but we should have seen Cindy and Bobby together at some point before Bobby goes off to college and again it's something that, that they probably could have filmed and then i bet you they probably would have chopped it off because they are like no no we got to get to Ronald and Cindy but it would have been nice to kind of get an idea of what she, what was she was going through with her mindset why she was so susceptible yeah. to to take the money and you know i mean it's not as simple as just saying oh my god i ruined my mom's dress i need that money it's like well, maybe there is a part of her that was like a little bit under uh, unhappy with, with Bobby. And she's like, well, this guy seems like a really charming guy. He mows the lawns. You never know.
0: Well, and to that point, we, we never see the relationship between the mother and Cindy seems to be more of sisterly. And, even, you yeah. know, the mom says, you know, I told you, no, you can't borrow it. But we've never seen any type of real parental punishment or even parental actions from the mom. So... We don't know why Cindy is so, you know, stressed out about uh, ruining the dress other yeah. than ruining it. Like, could she not slip it, a, you know, take it out of the closet and try to earn some money and then replace it later and maybe try to get away with it that way?
1: Well, yeah. And, I, and what's funny is, I mean, that's, that seems to me like it might have been some scenes that were deleted. Because they they do a good job of showing how like Ronald's family is like this ideal family, whereas Cindy's the rich people a little bit dysfunctional, mm-hmm. right? Where the mo- mom's got these random boyfriends and you know. But then like the parent characters are a little underdeveloped, which is fine if for for a teenage film. You know, the director kind of wisely chooses to focus on the kids. But then when Cindy and her mom had that bonding scenes toward the end, and I think Cindy's mom gets one of the greatest the great lines of the film when Cindy is talking about. Like, when, when Ronald's calling and, he, and Cindy has to, like, kind of keep pretending, oh, I'm not here, and then, and then she's describing, like, well, Ronald's not cool anymore, and then the mom basically says, like, well, I, I don't... Well, he's a geek now? I thought he was cool. Why, why do you not like him anymore? And she, has a, she ends with a really good line.
2: First he's a geek, and then you start going out with him. And then he's a geek again. Honey, I don't know what a geek is. I guess at the present time, a geek is Ronald Miller. Who says...
1: One of the more, more famous uh, factoids about the movie is the fact that Paul Abdul is it gets a choreographer credit. Um, she apparently designed the African ant eater ritual, and I read how she had wanted it to be culturally sensitive, and she kind of studied the dances of 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 the the region, I guess. And it's it's funny because that's one of those we talk about how. Like with Adventures of Babysitting that everyone remembers, you know, Don't F with the Babysitter. If, if people remember the opening credits, I think people still – it's funny. If you're talking to someone, you reference the African anteater ritual, they immediately kind of know, oh, can buy me love, right? Oh, do you yeah. remember remember anything more about that dance? And I just I do like the line where Seth Green, went, when he walks away and Seth Green just looks at the TV and goes, well, that ain't Dick Clark.
0: Yeah, and I wish I would have known it noted this for the podcast, but uh, I would like to go back and see which wrestling match Seth Green is watching um, yeah. at the beginning of that scene, but yeah, the a- African and Ritual is such a uh, iconic and, and I use the word anytime, disclaimer for future episodes, anytime I say iconic or classic on this episode, I am not talking in the general scope of the Academy or the, I'm talking as a child of the 80s. These are the movies that stuck with us. These yeah. are the movies that, that shaped us. So that African anteater ritual is just an iconic scene. I told you, if we do the 5K in Tucson, when I cross that finish line, I'm doing the African anteater ritual dance. I
1: would totally do that. Yeah. And what's funny is Chad and I just got a text message uh, this over the weekend from our friend Pam, who saw Paul Abdul in concert. And she said that they showed like a choreography montage during the show. And it included clips from Can't Buy Me Love. but. Ultimately, my favorite part of the whole film. We talk about how the pacing is really very well done, and then you look at the three act structure. Okay, what's going to get us from the second act into the third act? Well, into the, the second act is the New Year's Eve party, where Bobby shows up. Bobby finds out that that he was paid, that that, that Cindy was paid, and and says, you know, that makes you a pr- prostitute, and then. Cindy has this really great kind of monologue. You know, she's supposed to have been drinking, but yet, again, this is a 15-year-old actress who plays drunk very well, and I don't know if you remember or not, but after the breakup happens, and they show the party, and, and Ronald's across the room, and Cindy just turns and looks at him and just just points and goes, you! And it just, all she just says, <laughs> how is she going to emote that much in that one word? But that scene and that monologue is absolutely devastating.
2: You. Even Bobby thinks we went out. Great, huh? Ha. All of you thought we were a couple. What a joke. Ronald Miller paid me 1000 bucks to pretend I liked him. What a deal, huh? $1000 to go out with him for a month. This guy. Oh god. He bought me and he bought all of you. He was sick and tired of being a nobody. Yeah, and he said that all of you guys would worship him if we went out. And I didn't believe that. I was like, no way. And he was right. No, He was right. Our little plan worked, didn't it, Ronald? A dance. A stupid dance what a bunch of followers you guys are i mean at least i got at least i got paid
1: and yeah i mean and he makes allusion to it later in the film when ronald says you know like you totally destroyed me and it makes it kind of it, it's very hard to watch like it's heartbreaking even though you know it's coming like you, you at some point you know ronald's gonna he can't just get away with this at that, without his, without these new friends finding out about it, but there's a there's a moment after that where I think he's he goes back home and he's like crying alone. And like, and I was thinking, like, I don't remember seeing. I mean, you know, John Hughes movies had like a little bit of heft to them sometimes, but of all these high school movies in the eighties, I've never seen something just so absolutely heartbreaking where yeah. you see our main character. A man especially crying all by himself and And he's sleeping on the floor of the garage or a shed, I believe. Something oh. like that, right? Yeah. And then of course there's that there's a the, the neck that scene where he tries to apologize to Kenneth mm-hmm. in the arcade and like you can understand because what it, you know, I'm sure if you've listened to this movie, a lot of you have probably seen it, but uh, Ronald does a Halloween prank at Kenneth's house where he throws a bag of excrement and uh, and then, and, and Kenneth obviously did, that, just ends their friendship at that moment. And you realize, like, it, it, it's a shame that that happens. You know, it's coming, yeah. it's a shame it happens. And if he tries to apologize, it just makes it, like, it's hard to watch because you feel bad for them. Because I don't know about you, Chad, but I mean, I know that the kids that I went to junior high with, the time I got to high school, not all of us were still kind of talking. We didn't do anything as, as bad as that, but yeah. people change, but it just, like, in that, that heavy of a nature, yeah.
0: I, I think one of the things that makes this movie as as good as it is is that realistic approach to the characters. You know, we've we've talked about this before. I think on other shows or or in maybe just in our real life conversations, but this is pre cynicism Hollywood. Like they they treat the characters as real people. They don't mm-hmm. try to set out necessarily with an agenda. You know, I mentioned it on our last episode when talking about adventures and babysitting. Where the people that made this movie Didn't set out to make a movie That we were talking about 30 years later And still hold fondly They just set out to make a movie Yeah, And they played it honestly And I give all the credit to the writers of this film And I know it went through multiple rewrites
1: To get to oh, the yeah. point
0: where it is Because it, at one point it was more of a Porky's asked. I comedy. heard about.
1: I heard about that. Yeah, where there was like smart, very R-rated scenes. Yeah. You're like, no, why? Why did you have that?
0: And, and you know, I think Steve Rash was a good director to bring everything. And then, as we've mentioned, the actors are just across the board authentic characters. And yeah. for, you know, as we mentioned, as for Amanda Peterson being 15 and hold the gravitas of the act, the performance that she gave.
1: Oh yeah, and like so, I said, it's what what I what what makes it even greater too is that it has a a very satisfying conclusion i should say the the you know again it's again we're back in the romantic comedy mode now and so you know how it's going to end but it's just the way in which it ends i i I think is great well what's funny is um you know cindy kind of tries to change him when they start dating and yet at the end of the movie what i love is when you see him riding lawnmower and he's got like a cowboy hat on Mm -hmm. and it's so funny it's like he tries so hard to be popular and he changes his clothes and stuff when he when he's paid when he's after he's paid her the money but yet at the end when he's got that cowboy hat on like he has literally established his very own style he's not the old ronald he's not the 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 sort of the popular Ronald. He's just his own person, and yet that kind of is what gets the girl. Like, I don't know if, if she sees him in the cowboy hat and she sees him running out of the car, but yet that's kind of the moment where you realize, okay, he's 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 finally true to himself, and maybe she sees that as well.
0: And I, well, I think that goes back to when they were doing their month-long of dating is that when they weren't around their friends, she got to see who Ronald Miller is and yeah. for the for the first time because she – before, had only seen him as the lawn mowing Ronald. You know, she'd maybe give him the check after he's done, never talk to him, but then getting to know him. And, you know, I say that's one of the biggest parts uh, of dating in in today is people don't take the chance, take the time to get to know someone. Sure.
1: Yeah. And then, like, again, we talk about it being a romantic comedy. Like, I feel like the story's been told before, but it's usually, like, much more comedic. Like you mentioned, they try too hard. They put in some of the R-rated gags. But I do like how—I can't remember another movie, another high school movie like this, where they really take the point, like you mentioned, to set up how they show that the, that the same characters were much more closer when they were children— because what happens, especially when you go through elementary, then junior high, and then high yeah. school, if you get into a sport or you do an extracurricular activity, you you go with those people mm-hmm. instead, and you end up getting caught up. And and it's like I said, it's I you you're watching all the scenes that are funny. They're funny because you remember them. Or you I don't care how old you are. I don't mm-hmm. care if you went to high school in the eighties, nineties, two thousands. You probably had similar moments with your friends, or you had similar friends. Yeah. And then the scenes that are heartbreaking, you're like okay, if it didn't happen to me, I probably knew someone that it happened to. I had to console someone through a breakup mm-hmm. or whatnot. And so that's why I think that's what makes this movie so good, you know? Yeah, and to that point, I
0: I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, but one part that I had never realized until doing research for this podcast is the opening scene, Chucky, Seth Green's character, is with a couple of friends up in a treehouse. And Ronald tells him, you know, get down from the treehouse. That's dangerous. You're not supposed to be up there. At the end of the movie, when... Kenneth is now with the popular kids, and um, the jerk guy yeah. comes over, and Ronald says, "Look, you know we used to be friends. Remember when you fell out of my treehouse and you broke your arm, and Kenneth carried you to the air?" It's okay. like it's that tie-in. I, I did
1: miss that. Yeah. Quint. Quint Court McCown, the comedian, I believe. Now. Yeah, right? I've seen him
0: a few times at the comedy store.
1: Okay. Yeah, and like, and I have, I have the last note I have in there about the about the film is. The, a lot of the Grey's Anatomy fans must have really loved Ronald Miller when they were younger. Because I feel like the only people that I know that watch Grey's Anatomy are like, like my sister, and she loved uh, Patrick Dempsey. You know, I remember him from movies that he did a little bit later in the 90s, and then I never saw... He's going to come back to uh, Touchstone. I think Sweet Home Alabama is a Touchstone mm-hmm. film. So, we'll see more about that. Um, I'll save... You You save this for the end, but I'll go ahead into it. The movie was remade, of course, in 2003. Uh, it was called Love Don't Cost a Thing. Uh, I... I never saw it. I remember there being a really clever reference to it on the, uh, one of my favorite TV shows, Community. Okay, cool. So you guys are going to Can't Buy Me Love Me, right? We're going to what, you? You're going to Can't Buy Me Love Me. You know, transform me from zero to hero, geek to chic. Oh, he wants us to love don't cost a thing him. Oh. Can't Buy Me Love was the remake for white audiences.
2: That's so uncomfortable when they do that. I can't believe it didn't until
1: All right. Nobody here is Can't Buy Me Loving or Love Don't Cost a Thinging anyone. Because we've all seen enough after school specials from Fat Albert to know that Abed only needs to be himself. But then you know Chad Smart did see it. So Chad, I'll give you you take the floor now. Tell us if you what you remember about Love Don't Cost a Thing.
0: Yeah, I watched this a few months ago in preparation, knowing that we were gonna be discussing this and having never seen it, I'm like, it was just home one night, like, oh, looking for something. It was on Netflix at the time. And it's pretty much a beat-for-beat. Remake they do change things up, like instead of being the football player, he's now in the n b a and so the seasons are changed, so instead of being a new year's uh New Year's Eve party that the break it happens at senior skip day and they're at the beach oh
1: okay, okay
0: uh the the probably the biggest change is instead of the younger brother, there's now a younger sister, but she's not really a part it's more the dad who's played by Steve Harvey, and he's trying to be the all cool. Ladies' man teaches son, Nick Cannon, uh, okay. how to like – because there's like a scene where he's like trying to teach him how to open a condom with one hand. and Really? Just, yeah. It's not good. Uh, I wanted to go back and rewatch like the third act of the movie to see how it tied in. But unfortunately, it was gone from Netflix. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember exactly. But it, it's – I think it is more of what we said the typical teenage comedy is – than what can't mind me love was like i don't think it had, oh yeah i don't think it had the heart and the soul because it was kind of a cash grab remake
1: yeah i mean and i think the screenwriter michael swardlik said that he was brought in like as a consultant on it they you know he didn't really have a hand in it uh we talk about the presence of the touchstone touch i mean there's some very slight sexual situations i love the scene where ronald loses his virginity i think it's, <laughs> it's really funny in the bathroom with the with uh, Iris, is that her, I think that's, that's her name You know, and there's a couple of brief instances of foul language Some iconic scenes I, We talk about the, the scene in the arcade I, I remember one, whenever you show it on And they show it on TV And the Kenneth character says You hit on my house And I'll let you at home guess what he says in the actual film But uh, you were just saying with love don't cost a thing I have a note that says uh, High school hijinks that would probably be more raunchier in current films yeah. You know
0: Well, you talk about Iris um, Do you know who Iris was?
1: She was, I believe, was she a Playboy playmate?
0: So this movie has two Playboy playmates in it.
1: Okay. Iris is played by, and I hope I pronounced this
0: correctly, Devin DeVasquez. Uh, She was a playmate in June of 1985 and apparently dated Prince around that time. Okay. Because nothing new with Can't Buy Me Love, just a cool little fact. Prince, man. Yeah. um, And then playing an uncredited high schooler is Brandy Brant. Who was a playmate in October of eighty-seven? Oh wow. Your sister will know who this is because she went on to marry Nikki Six.
1: Ah, okay. Motley Crue's oh Nikki Six, yeah.
0: And then uh, I mentioned Mac and Me earlier. Tina Casper, who played Barbara in this movie, would go on to star to be in Mac and Me.
1: Oh man, okay. So I do James Bond connections <laughs> in my, my movies. Chad's going to have Mac and Me connections. If all of these if I
0: could pull out another Mac and Me connection anywhere in the history of this podcast, I will be impressed and dismayed.
1: Well this is this might be uh, kind of one of the uh, most obvious things, but if we're going to rate this film on a, on a scale of one to ten, I, I just give it a solid nine. you know there's a couple of things that keep it away from being a 10 for me, some of the, some of the stuff with Seth Green and whatnot. but I just I, I, I thought it was just like a, an unflinching and realistic look at high school anguish and the pressures of popularity. They did such a good job with it. Yeah,
0: for me, I was gonna go between a nine and a nine five. I just this is one movie that if I'm ever going through the TV channels and I see it on, I will stop and watch it until it's over with. Yeah. No matter, like you said, I don't know how many times I've seen it. I, and just talking about now, as soon as we're done, I want to go watch it again. Yeah. Because I just I think this movie is. Near perfect, and just it's just a great film.
1: I am absolutely astonished that this film has never been released on Blu-ray. You know, and, and
0: I, I think there's probably a reason why,
1: because of the music. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I and I think well, hopefully it will turn up on Disney Plus. Maybe on Hulu when the Disney movies start flowing over there. Mm. You know, I, this movie needs to be seen by more people. I think um, from a trivia pr- perspective, uh, as we, we, I don't we haven't mentioned it yet, but the original title of the film i guess when the script was first written it was called the payoff and then it was then changed to boy rents girl and that was the the name that they kind of went with for the longest time um film production started on the movie in january of 1987 touchstone bought it in june they made the movie the budget was only 1.8 million dollars it was made by a, a, a private production company called apollo pictures after disney bought it michael eisner said, we're changing it to Can't Buy Me Love and then started the wheels in motion to acquire the rights to the the Beatles song.
0: Well, and it was originally set up at Paramount under the name Boy Rinse Girl. Yeah. And it was dropped there when one of the female executives was offended by the premise.
1: I thought, yeah, I thought I'd heard that too. Yeah, that's funny. And then um, did you see that Disney once after they bought it, they authorized reshoots for the film, including. But they but they had to when they went back to go shoot the scene with the lawnmower, the, the lawn was gone, mm. so they had to pay fifteen thousand dollars to resod the lawn for that scene. Um, I I have a note that says is this true? Because whenever I I always talk about whenever I see a factoid in IMDb's trivia page. I always try to try to find a second source to confirm it, and I made a note about how, because the film was non-union, the Screen Actors Guild sent reps to the high school to discourage the students from appearing as extras, and as a result, the drama club of the school chose not to participate, you know, in the film. Uh, we watched again in that Q and A. Uh, Michael Swordlick specifically says, "Oh yeah, they were picketing every day on the set." He said they got to know we, they got to know them, and they just said, "Here's what we're doing." You know, we understand why you, why, why this is all going on. But I guess maybe it was because of a, was it a budgetary issue or you know? I, I mean, I've been on, I was on a movie, the one movie that I worked on in, in L.A. We, we were, we were, it wasn't that we were non-union, but we were like. Ultra ultra low budget. So whenever I I I was at one point tasked with hiring a production manager, so I had to call people and I told them what we were offering, and the guy said, "Oh, I legally cannot take that when I'm in the union." And and so my boss was like, "Well, if they ever say that, tell them that we are a ultra low budget film, so that changes the parameters for what you make." I mean, Chad, we both work in this industry. We know what there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of uh, whatnot. did you see that Michael Sperdlick, they said this was his debut script. He claimed that the film was is, is based on his own experiences. He was working in the mailroom at the William Morris Talent Agency, and he was unnoticed by executives until he was in... All, all the mailroom guys were invited to a party, and he said he brought one of his attractive female friends with him. And then after that point, while all those same executives that ignored him wanted to have lunch with him, wanted to be his friend. And that's, I mean... I could, it sounds really shallow, but then we're talking about mm. Hollywood talent yeah. agencies, right? Um, the um, I think we we alluded to it already, but the most expensive part of the movie the the writer mentioned was the uh, the rights to the Beatles song "Can't Buy Me Love."
0: Yeah, which I found this article from uh, 1987 in a newspaper called the Morning Call. I believe it's a local Pennsylvania area because Steve Rash is from the Pennsylvania area. I believe. Er, not, sorry, Swordlick. Swordlick, yes, okay. the writer. And it mentions that the current Beatles revival, which was going on in 1987, uh, with the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, was not a big marketing factor in the, in the changing of the name. It was uh, said, quote, surprisingly, in our informal research, kids have no idea that Can't Buy Me Loves, a song, much less a Beatles song. It's amazing. Um, Interesting. Oh, and it is Steve Rash. I think he had moved to Pennsylvania. Oh, have been it, to, okay. Yeah. Um, and the title was changed to Can't Buy Me Love at the suggestion of Disney chief Michael Eisner. And he's the one who got the ball rolling to get Michael Jackson, who owned the Beatles publishing rights at yeah, that time. He
1: bought at, he Michael Jackson bought the Beatles rights in 1985. Uh, it cost $125,000 to license the song. And Swerdlick mentions in the Q&A how there were, there were stipulations around the music. And it has to do with, like, he said they could only use, like, 18 seconds you can only use 18 seconds of the song in the trailers, and the TV spots you had to use even less, and there was, there, you know, and so but they get their money's worth, it plays in the opening credits and in the closing credits, and it's just, it's such a perfect, It's I think it's perfectly used in both instances. Mm-hmm. I did see that in order to get the, the usage of the song, they had to screen the film at Neverland Ranch, and Michael Michael Jackson liked the movie, and, and uh, it, what did Michael Swirlik said, uh He gave it to us for the bargain basement price of $125,000. I ask you this off the air, Chad, and I've talked to my wife about it because she's a big Beatles fan, but I wonder if Michael didn't own the Beatles music and if the Beatles still did, would they have licensed it? Because it seemed like the Beatles were notorious for not... They did not Mm. want their music used, and I think it's kind of a missed opportunity if they they hadn't used it. Would you still want Boy Rent's Girl? Would Michael Eisner have chosen a different song to be the title of the film? Yeah, that's
0: a good question because I'm... I'm trying to think of other songs that could have been used, you know, as a theme song, and uh, all I have going through my head right now is, "Wait a minute, Mr. Postman." And I don't know if you change Patrick Dempsey's character. Yeah, probably not. Sure, uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. I, I hadn't even thought about the fact that if the because I know like Led Zeppelin would not will not license their songs for yeah. anything. So maybe- Beastie,
1: Beastie Boys, right? Isn't Adam Yauch and his Will? It was just like you can't license any of their yeah. music, supposedly,
0: even if it's for an album called Ill. You can't license it.
1: Um, one the last uh, trivia fact that I had, which I thought was interesting, was, okay, so we've talked about this before. We'll get into it when we talk to, to our personal connection to the film, but uh, I believe it was 2011. Chad and I went to a midnight screening of Can't Buy Me Love that had the writer, several of the actors, no Dempsey, no Amanda Peterson, but that Q&A, and it's on YouTube in its entirety. It's about 45 minutes long, and it is fascinating. The stories that they all tell, it's so good. If you like this movie... It's so much It's much more insightful, and it makes you wish there was some sort of like a commentary track that that you could get. Um, Michael Swirlick tells this like five-minute story about how the movie got made. And I, I can't put the whole thing in here, but I'll, I'll just kind of crib it really quick. He says that um, uh, this Apollo Pictures, he was asked to rewrite a motocross film that they were making called Winners Take All. That film featured Courtney Gaines and Gerardo Mejia. Um, his agent sent them the script to Boyrent's Girl just as a sample of his work. And they immediately dropped the idea of him rewriting the motocross film and said, well, let's make Boyrent's Girl instead. While they were filming the movie, an unemployed friend named Chris Zarpis visited the set. He actually has a cameo in the film as well. And then, after the film was sh- finished, he got hired by... Chris Zarpis got hired by Disney in their newly formed acquisitions department. And so he brings the idea... To Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and they screen the film with the writer Michael Swardick and his family at the time. His family's visiting, and it just so happens that he's screening the film with his family. And then, at Eisner and Katzenberg walk in, they they watch the first three or four minutes. They laugh three or four times. They walk out. They buy the film uh, the same day for uh, I believe it was for six million dollars. It's, it's one of those random only in Hollywood kind and, of moments.
0: And I believe as of this. Uh... You know, 1987, this was only the second non-Disney-produced film that Disney released.
1: Oh, yeah. You know what the other one was? Shoot. Benji. Benji the Hunted? It did, which also
0: came out in 1987. And
1: I guess technically, yeah, I was looking at that, too, because Ernest Goes to Camp, but then I think they touched on promised them money Mm. and said, make it on your own, and then we'll give you money when you're done with it.
0: We've sat here for I don't know how long gushing about this movie. There is one person who did not like this movie, and I... Um, I don't know how I feel about this, but I'm going to give you Roger Ebert's one-star review of the film. Because, as I mentioned, I like to go back and look at the critical response. Here's part of his review. Can't Buy Me Love makes American teenagers look like stupid and and materialistic twits. That would be alright if the movie were aware of itself and knew what it was doing. If it were a satirical comment on our society... But this movie is as naive as the day is long. It doesn't have a thought in its head and probably no notion of the corruption at its core. If Can't Buy Me Love had been intended for a satirical look on American values, if cynicism had been its target, we might be onto something here. But no, on the basis of the evidence, the people who made this movie are so materialistic, they actually think this is a, quote, teenage comedy. Can't they see the screenplay's rotten core? And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, I think it works because it's not cynical. Yeah. So Roger Ebert... I do not trust your opinion on movies anymore. You also didn't like North.
1: Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Ebert like Love Don't Cost a Thing?
0: I believe he did, and he also wrote Beyond the Valley of the Doll. So (laughs) take that for what it's worth.
1: Okay, I always like to look at, because Chad and I do a podcast called Wonder Why, where we look at the uh, charts and one-hit wonders. So I always like to look at the theme songs of these movies and how they appeared, uh, how they did on the charts. Well, the theme song of this movie (laughs) did quite well on the charts, uh, if you know. The the Beatles version of of Can't Buy Me Love was number one. Uh, on the charts in 1964 it was number one for four weeks it was the third consecutive number one hit that was from a beat that was from the beatles that just you know and then when and when can't by me love hit number one on the charts the beatles had all top five songs which i don't think has ever been recreated it's this very famous thing they had the top five songs were all from the beatles at one, that same week post
0: malone hasn't done that
1: i mean he's had his whole album on the chart mm, yeah. but never of the top five um one of the songs, because there's so many scenes with parties or they're driving around, but what I thought was funny was there's a song in there that immediately took me back to the 80s, and it was a song called Living in a Box by a band called Living in a Box. Which I believe was on the album. Living in a Box. Uh, I looked it up. They hit number 17 on the charts. Hmm. They're a one-hit wonder. They might be one of the ones we discuss on on our other podcast. Um, I also noticed there was a song in there called French Kissin'. French Kissin' in the USA, which plays at one of the uh, parties. I remember it. uh, I guess it was originally done by Debbie Harry from Blondie. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, it's covered by a woman named Carol Chapman. The song was written by Chuck Lorre from Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men. It just ah, blows my mind sometimes. Um, I guess we'll go to the box office. I mean, you... I was surprised the movie was popular, not like a hit hit, but still pretty successful. It opens. Uh, we we said it was it. Stakeout had opened the week before. It opened on we said August fifth on a Wednesday. This movie opens on August fourteenth, which is the Friday, the following Friday. It opens at number three with four point seven five million dollars, and it finishes behind Stakeout and The Living Daylights. Also opening that weekend were No Way Out, the um, Kevin Costner. Sean Young movie mm-hmm. uh, Disorderlies With the Fat Boys Never seen it Chad you seem to love it or? Uh,
0: Well I saw it in the theater When it came out I have not seen it Probably since So I'm sure it
1: Does not It, it is not the classic That I think it is see it in the theater Oh huh, okay. yeah uh, Monster Squad Opened that weekend One of my favorite movies Again I saw it on cable As a kid I didn't, never would have had A chance to see it In the theater And also North Shore Which is a movie that Those movies bother me Because I grew up in Hawaii Whenever I see a movie Where the island girl Falls in love with the white guy uh, it just gets me. Yet we saw a screening of North Shore a few years back, and and I, we met some of the actors. And it's it, it's a fun movie, I guess. Um, okay, so can't buy me eleven. Its second week, it still finishes number three, but this time it's behind Stakeout and Born in East LA, which had just opened. Uh, Dirty Dancing was a close fourth. And then from that point on, it starts dropping. Dirty Dancing comes up and, and has, a, has a nice run. Um, Ken Me Love stays in the top ten for about a month through the Labor Day holiday. It ends with $31.6 million. Again, $1.8 million budget, and it makes $31.6 million. Chad, have you got anything else on this? Because I really hate the next movie we're going to discuss. So if there's any other thing we can talk about with Ken Me Love.
0: Uh, I would say, you know, as much as you should listen to the rest of the show, because you want to be a completist, and we've had to suffer for your pleasure to watch it. Go watch "Can't Buy Me Love," and and then next week, watch "Can't Buy Me Love," and just uh, you know honor the memory. We haven't mentioned, unfortunately, Amanda Peterson did pass away a few years mm-hmm. ago. Yes, um, but this is again, this is just one of my all-time favorite films. So I cannot say enough good about this film, but I know we only have a limited time on this podcast, so let's move on.
1: Just hear me out, and then I'll leave you alone. Okay. Oh, you, you demolished me New Year's Eve.
0: But see, I realize you did me a favor. You brought me back to reality. All I ever wanted to do was get close to you. And then, when I finally got there, it wasn't me anymore. Cindy. Oh, Cindy. I was just hoping we could sort this out. You know? The real me. And the real you. You know, you can't buy me love. And Mike, I have to say, I don't think you could pay me enough to watch our next movie again. And... I hate to say that because we we want to be positive on the show, but we're just doing an honest overview of the Touchstone uh, filmography. Shelley Long, we've seen her before in Outrageous Fortune. Now she's starring in her own, uh, you know, she's lost Bette Midler. She's by herself. She's leading the pack. The movie is Hello Again. From Touchstone Pictures, Lucy Chadman had the perfect life until a chicken ball ended it all. But thanks to her sister's magic spell, Lucy's come back from the dead. they are dead. Dead. D-E-A-D.
1: Let's go say hello. He can't say hello. He was at your funeral. Shelley along is Lucy Chapman, and Lucy Chadman's life just hasn't been the same since her death.
2: Any chance do you know what's happened on Knott's Landing?
0: Hello again.
1: Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspaper for Showtime. Yes, released on November 6th of 1987. Oh, you know what? There'd be another good movie in November of 87. Save that for the next episode, but uh, this is Hello Again. Um, Directed by Frank Perry. You know, I kind of pride myself on knowing a little bit about when I hear a director's name. Oh, he also did this or did that. I was not overly familiar with with Frank Perry's work, so I had to look him up. He collaborated with his wife, Eleanor, throughout the 60s and 70s. They did uh, movies such as The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. A movie i always wanted to see. I heard it's supposed Mm. to be really, really odd, but fun. Um, And a movie called Diary Diary of a Mad Housewife. Um, He's most famously known for directing Mommy Dearest in 1981. Uh, The prior film before Hello Again that he had directed was in 1985, a movie called Compromising Positions, which was based on a novel by Susan Isaacs. She had adapted her own book into the screenplay, and she wrote the screenplay for Hello Again. Compromising Positions also uh, co-starred Judith Ivey, who was in Hello Again as well. As Chad mentioned, this is Shelley Long's second consecutive Touchstone film following *Outrageous Fortune*. She had started a contract with Disney before her five-year contract on *Disney on Cheers* was up, and I, I read an, I found an interview with her with, with Phil Donahue where she was talking about how like why did she leave Cheers? And she mentions that everyone in the cast got five-year contracts, and in the middle of the fourth year, Ted Danson got his renewed for a six. And yet, Shelley Long never got hers renewed. So she signed a contract with to, with Disney to make films. And then during the, her fifth year, they never extended her contract. And she said, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and do films, and you can kind of move on without me. Uh, she claimed that, that the Disney contract was set up like in the earliest pre-production and planning stages of Outrageous Fortune. Um, you know, if you look at this movie, I I, I had the hopes for it because it was when I started this podcast, there was a lot of these random movies that I was curious about, like whether it be Tin Men or as soon as we learned about Offbeat, you know, I remember Hello Again. I remember the poster. I remember, I remember commercials. Oh, she chokes and then she yeah. comes back. And so um, I was just astonished how unfunny it was. Well, let me jump in here because I
0: have a feeling we're not going to have a whole lot positive to say about this film. And We'll try to be nice, but yeah. Yeah. So this movie was written by Susan Isaacs, who also had written Compromising Positions. Mm-hmm. And I found an interview with her where in regards to Hello Again, she, she says, the same producer who produced Compromising Positions wanted to do this one, but the big difference was that he almost immediately sold it to Disney. They were heavily involved. I wound up collaborating with them and sabotaging my own script. It went from being a joyous thing to something that was more studio-driven. So as much credit as we can give Eisner and Katzenberg for other Disney films, this case may have been, you know, this may be a case of too many cooks Cooks in the kitchen. kitchen.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could believe that because it just, it's very clunky. You know, like the very, from the very outset of the movie, the exposition is really forced. I couldn't help but notice like throughout the, maybe the first act of the film, whenever two characters are together, at some point in the dialogue, they refer to their familiar relationship like, well, you're my sister, well, this, well, you're my wife, as my husband, you like to do that, as my mother, it's like every single, it's like, okay, we, we know who they are now. Um, Again, I'm not overly familiar with Frank Perry's work, and I don't know if it was something that was, where he didn't have final cut, but a lot of the scenes are just, they're so short, it, it's, it, it doesn't serve any purpose, like, it, it's just, like, two people talking, and they're walking, and then boom, cut to the next scene, and you're like, I feel like there should have been some more of that scene, it was, it's very, but then I read on, apparently, Frank Perry, he said he was known for his economical filmmaking. He had a he had a motto which was quote cut print edit distribute and sure it's just everything is right to the point I mean we talk about Can't Buy Me Love having lightning quick pacing but at least it had the scenes had a flow to them these ones just don't it's just scene, scene boom scene okay next boom next one
0: yeah Can't Buy Me Love seemed to have a story to structure this yeah. seems like a, a gimmick and then you make a scene. To try to fit that gimmick instead of having an overarching story, because as we said, watching the film, what is the story being told? Mm-hmm. What you know, where if you were the writer, where would you take this plot? Yeah. And the whole gimmick begins and ends with Shelley Long dies. They bring her back. Now and what? then, what?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm pretty sure you know we we were, we were watching the film. We watched the film together again. We don't like to do that, but. Our friend Pam, who we just mentioned, she has the film on Blu-ray. Full disclosure, I bought it for her as a gift because I knew we were going to have to watch it for this show. And I couldn't find this movie on any of the public libraries. No, it wasn't streaming. I thought we wanted to rent it. And so we all watched it together. And at one point, like she even said, I thought this movie was going to be funnier when she remembered it from watching it back in the day. And I turned to Chad 20 minutes into the film and I said, there's still no plot. Like we're almost approaching the end of the first act and there's no plot. And I I often wonder, you know, when we look at, you look at like the three-act structure... I often when I studied screenwriting they, they said you know something should happen in the first 10 pages and then something has to happen at the end of the first act and in the way this movie is set up like the first act is just them kind of setting up her daily life in a very clunky way and then she dies at the end of the first act and I'm wondering like would it have been better off if she would have died earlier so that maybe we would have had more time to have scenes without her, so that you can see how the, pe- the people are coping. Instead, mm-hmm. so that it's not it's not just like okay, she dies and then all of a sudden she's back. There, they, there was really no, no. downtime. I mean, I know, I know it's a star vehicle. Maybe that's probably why it was right. And even the characters that we get
0: are so one dimensional. You know, because the whole thing is she's married to this plastic surgeon. She's just she's a teacher, and I no disrespect to any teachers out there but this film plays it up as like oh does my you know does my career matter or everything because then i'm hanging out with all these rich people who are the rich snobby mm-hmm. oh we look down on on you know The normal people.
1: Yeah. They keep driving that point home a lot in the film, don't they? It makes you think that I wonder if the, did Susan Isaacs have an upbringing like that or did she get treated differently? And then she's like, I'm going to put this in my, my film. I don't know. Very generic. Yeah. So as you mentioned, she, she, she dies at the end of the first act. She finally gets resurrected. Her sister is the eccentric one who does all these incantations and spells. And so, you know, I think it's a missed opportunity because when she is finally resurrected, the, her sister's at the at a graveyard with her and when she brings her back, like, she has no recollection of, of any of the time that she was gone.
2: Zelda! Zelda? Hello. Wake up. Oh, yeah. Are you alright? Hello? What's wrong? Are you in a trance? Am I in a trance? How did oh. we get here? Oh! Yeah. Oh! Oh, you're having a good time. I'm happy for you. I can't say as I feel the same way. It's kind of bizarre here, so, you know? Ugh, spooky. Let's get out of here. Oh, my God. What am I doing in this dress? Uh, Kim said it would be perfect for you, but... Oh, who are we kidding? I wouldn't be caught dead in this dress.
0: You know, one thing that, after watching the movie and, and unfortunately thinking about it way too much... Uh, one thought I had was, you know, a few episodes ago, we talked about Tough Guys, which were Burt Lancaster and Kurt Douglas being away from society for 30 years. This is a movie where Shelley Long has gone for a year. And, Granted, that's not as big of a gap, but like you said, there's no – everything that seems to have happened in that year seemed to happen almost over overnight. Like there's no real consequence of her being dead. We don't see the husband, Corbin Bernson – dealing with it, we don't see the sister dealing with it, and, and then, you know, we don't even see Shelley Long's character in the afterlife being like, oh, I'm dead now, you know, that probably would have been a better subplot for the film.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the biggest problems that I had was, I'm not overly familiar with Shelley Long's work, I think I mentioned that on the Outrageous Fortune episode, but there are just pratfalls and physical comedy in this film for just no reason whatsoever, it just she can't even walk up a set of stairs without her clothes falling off, mm-hmm. right? Or she has a press conference with a microphone and she grabs one and then they all fall over. Um, to me, that seemed like really lazy. It was almost like it was the, f- the filmmakers instead of showing us that she's a funny actress, it was like them telling us, look, she's funny. Look at what she's doing. I, sh- I swear she's funny. You're supposed to appreciate this, right?
0: You're not alone in that sentiment. You know, looking through reviews, the LA Times review again uh, talks about how uh, the star system is dead and how this movie was made, you know, for a star. And they talk about Shelley Long and and they also don't hold any punches on the film. There are assaults on logic right and left, but it matter, matters little for Shelley Long is an irresistible charmer. She has the kind of wit, femininity, and straightforwardness that makes her the perfect foil for a screwball comedy, much like Irene Dunn in the 30s, if you know your classic actresses. Mm-hmm. Yet she is so contemporary that she can take a classic pratfall and make you forget that everybody from Chaplin to Lucille Ball has done it. I disagree. And I think that, uh, you know, watching this movie, we always say, like, could this be remade? You know, what would you do to remake it? This, if they took the script, flipped it to a male, this has Kevin James, fat guy fall down, go boom.
1: Fat guy fall down, go boom. Written all over it. Yeah, that's all it is. It's blonde girl. Yeah. Fall down, go boom. Yeah, I, I got nothing. I mean, and I even look at like Chad's mantra of two or three rewrites away from being good. But yeah, could you we talk about could you make a sequel or a remake? Like, I, I don't, I don't, know. I don't want you to. I don't, I don't we don't, you, you don't. know nobody, nobody asks for that. You know, again, trying to be mean, but it's there's not a whole lot redeeming about this. Um, before, I, before we finish it The discussion i will say the uh touch don't touch it's a pg film uh-huh. but yet like in the first 30 minutes you see shelly long in her in her underwear her old lady frilly white underwear like three different times in the first half hour of the film just for no excuse just just changing right in the middle of, on screen like do we do we really need to see that i don't know i can't imagine that disney was like we, this is a, this is our chance to be a little more edgy than our uh, animated films and stuff and let's show shelly long in her underwear you
0: know somebody might have seen night shift and thought it was a good idea because she's in her underwear and that in a couple of scenes. I guess
1: yeah, I will say you talk about
0: the Touchstone touch uh, from the same LA Times review. It says um, when it comes to the ultimate and chick decor and trendy lifestyles of the '80s, Touchstone productions are films of her films for the time capsule, and we've talked about that before. How the fashions of these movies are so over the top '80s. Yeah
1: but yet can't buy me love. I mean, other than the fact that when he gets popular, but he's a little to didn't top. make it. That's true. I guess it was, it was, they bought it after the fact. Uh, Chad, I'll let you go first on a scale of one to 10.
0: Did you ever think that baby would not be the worst film that we saw? Mm. I, I'm going with a one. I, uh, I'm going to use this quote from the Washington post review and it says, um, not too long ago, in the movie *The Money Pit*, Shelley Long spent most of her time with a house caving in on her head, watching her new movie *Hello Again*. All I could think of: where was that house when you need it? Ouch! And I think Gene Siskel summed it up best.
1: I didn't laugh once throughout the entire film. We not even then? No, I did not laugh at all. I was—you uh, use the word *sitcom*? That's what this is. This is an overgrown TV show. Mm-hmm. This—I don't know if this would be even a pilot for a series. I mean, this would be a bad episode of a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, nothing is funny. The Shelley Long falls and uh, her blouse gets wet with soup does not amuse me. Uh, that she comes back to Earth and that they're shocked and screamed that did not amuse me. Uh, there's nothing in the movie that amuses me. Miss, they missed. They one. I, I, I just don't I, don't. I don't. I don't even. I don't get the juice in the picture where it could have been. Other than what you suggested, which would be involve a total rewrite no, of the one whole, of the one Siskel one- spitting fire. Yeah, but I, I agree with them completely. I. I took it a step just because I was trying to be a little nice, and I, I have it too. I, it's it's slow, it's meandering, it's bizarre, it's unfunny, and it's pointless. I mean, the only real saving grace of the film is the outstanding supporting cast, but they're all underused and one-dimensional. Yeah. I, I, I uh, yeah, we haven't really talked about the cast, but Ceila Ward's character weird. is just gold digger. Yeah, totally vapid. Yeah. You know, and Austin Pendleton, who I love, just he's kind of wasted. There's a there's like this subplot between him and Judith Ivy where they they immediately become attracted, like. That could have been fleshed out and done really, really well. Yeah, I and thought. I think it
0: was on the Siskel and Ebert program where it may, may have been Ebert said that the best part of the movie is those two characters. Mm-hmm. Give them a story of their own and you've probably got something better.
1: Yeah, so we totally, yeah, Siskel and Ebert kind of echo our opinions on this movie. I, I guess
0: I have to go back on what I said earlier in the show about Roger Ebert. Yeah.
1: I'll give him a benefit of the doubt there. Um, okay, did you see, this Was okay, when it comes to the trivia for this film, there's only so much, but it's more involved with the people who made the film. Frank Perry, again, I said I wasn't really overly familiar with him. His half-sister is a pastor. Her name is Mary Christine Perry. And she is married to another pastor. Mary Perry? Mary Perry. She is married to another pastor. His name is Maurice Hudson. They have a daughter named Catherine Elizabeth Hudson. Chad, do you know who Catherine Elizabeth Hudson is?
0: Oh, I know who Kate Hudson is.
1: Well, I know. That's probably my first obvious thing. It is the
0: singer who changed her name because of the actress Kate Hudson. Yes. We know her as Katy Perry.
1: Yes, she took her mother's maiden name. So I was like, oh, okay. So Frank Perry, the director of Hello Again, uncle of Katy Perry. Um, Gabriel Byrne, who... Another one of those great supporting cast members who is wasted in this film. He did a movie in 2015 called Louder Than Bombs, and there's a clip from Hello Again used in the film because in the movie, Gabriel Byrne plays a failed actor, and he shows a clip of the movie on it's on tv and his sons see it and they make fun of him for it and I got this great quote uh, from Gabriel Byrne he said quote I told the director I don't know how I feel about that to me it was about looking at a clip of an old movie I did and there's a certain pathos to it that scene was shot in the first two weeks I'd ever set foot in America that was my young naive self sitting across from someone I'd never even heard of who used to be mobbed during the lunch hours. I was playing what the studio thought I was best suited for, which was light romantic comedy. I had a horrible experience making the film, to be absolutely honest, unquote. I read something where, where it said that he almost gave up acting out of it as a result, and I'm like, oh, that can't, be, that can't be good. I don't know. Um, the film's original release date was uh, October 9th, which was Columbus Day weekend, but Disney pushed it to no- November 6th because they were optimistic about the film's chances as closer to the holidays. Um, I looked it up. It would have opened October 9th. It would have opened against the movies like father like son and someone to watch over me uh surrender the uh sally field michael Caine, uh romantic comedy and three o'clock high ironically the same film that finished number one on october 9th also finished first on november 6th which we'll get into in a minute uh just out of curiosity like father like son made more money on its opening weekend than hello again did on its opening weekend Speaking of the box office, okay, um, we said it opens in, in November. It opened in second place, with, makes $5.7 million, and it finishes behind the first place film, which was Fatal Attraction. Uh, also opening that weekend were Less Than Zero, Death Wish 4, and Hiding Out with John Cryer. And for another show, Keith Coogan. Oh, I forgot. Okay, he's in that one. All right, good. Uh, and its second week of release, it falls to third place. As Arnold makes his arrival with The Running Man, and that tops the uh, box office, it pushed it gets pushed down even further the following week with new movies such as uh, Flowers in the Attic, the Barbara Streisand film Nuts, uh, Teen Wolf T O O, and a certain movie that was a Disney re-release, which we'll talk about in a minute as well. Uh, it ends with twenty point four million dollars in six weeks of release. Um, when we talk about it in the next episode, when we go, we'll, we'll discuss the end of 1987 and we'll look at the entire year in box office, but I'll give you a little uh, spoiler. Hello Again is the only 1987 Touchstone film of the nine that they released that does not finish in the top 50 of the year in box office. Benji the Hunted made more money than Hello Again. The only film that Disney released in 1987 that made less money than Hello Again was the re-release of The Aristocats. Awards Consideration. I'm laughing, Razzies. but would you believe that in addition to Elizabeth Shue in Adventures in Babysitting, Shelley Long is also nominated as favorite movie actress in the 1988 Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Awards. I can see that. And they both lose to Whoopi Goldberg in the R-rated Fatal Beauty. Again, I, it's two PG and PG-13 comedies featuring Fall actresses or just comedic setups. They lose to Whoopi Goldberg playing a narcotics police officer. I, I don't get it. Um, I always I try to find a, a connection with James Bond, my, fa- my favorite franchise. Uh, Gabriel Byrne himself screen tested for James Bond. Uh, there's, there's a clip of him doing an interview. He's very, very critical of it. It's, kinda, it's funny to listen to. But he said, quote, There were certain people in the Bond setup that really wanted me to play James Bond. Uh, he didn't like the character because it was sexist and cartoonish. And he goes on to say that it was embarrassing to be associated with, quote, that thing. I'm
0: guessing this would have been after Roger Moore had played Bond. So probably still in the cheesy aspect as opposed to the uh, Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan, Brosnan era yeah.
1: of Bond. Oh, my God. So can we say goodbye to hello again? Uh, we, we never should have met. We should have remained strangers So when you look at both of these films for, From a touchstone perspective And how they fit into our, our Disney ideal Honestly I think Can't Buy Me Love Is like the quintessential touchstone film Even though it's produced by somebody else It just seems like the kind of movie That they would have been wanting to, to release mm-hmm. To teenagers and get them to enjoy it So that they could so that what, what would we say? The, the, the little brothers The teenagers thought mm-hmm. that, the, that Disney movies were for little brothers Can't Buy Me Love was, was perfect for them you know, whereas Hello Again, I saw that really more or less begins the downfall of Shelley Long's star status because every movie that she had done, you know, was like an ensemble where she's playing opposite somebody. Look at Money Pit and uh, Night Shift, outrageous outrageous Fortune. Outrageous Fortune, and then after 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 Hello Again, she goes. A year and a half before she does Troop Beverly Hills, and that bombed. And if you look from her career on that after *True Beverly Hills, she only does TV movies and then essentially the Brady Bunch movie. And where she's playing a TV, more or less a TV character, right? So, yeah, it's I I you forget what a, what a small microcosm Shelley Long's star status was in that brief period in the late '80s. Um, as we always like to do, we like to see what other movies Disney released at the same time. No original stuff, but in, on November 20th, the week before Thanksgiving, there's a re-release of Cinderella. Uh, it finishes in second place in its first two weeks. It runs all the way through the New Year, and it brings in 34.1 million dollars wow. in that span. We always like to kind of mention our personal connections with these movies, as we've alluded to several times. Uh, In in 2011, Chad and I went to a reunion screening of Can't Buy Me Love at the New Art, still one of my favorite screenings we've ever been at. Um, A few years after that, I was at a movie theater, and Gabriel Byrne sat next to me, and um, it was... It was a screening of a of a retrospective about this TV show called Night flight, which was a show in the in the eighties that showed music videos and animation and um, he was he was a guest of the person who was moderating the Q and a which was Michael Debar the musician who was a singer of power station at one point um, and so the two of us were sitting next to each other and during the trailers they showed a trailer for the who the kids are all right concert film which they were going to show at the theater later and Gabriel kind of shook his head and I was like oh did you ever see the who and he goes oh yeah I saw them back in Ireland back in you know and so Gabriel Byrne and I sat and talked for about 10-15 minutes before the movie started and then after it was all over they do the Q&A and then I kid you not what's still one of my favorite experiences I could talk about it for forever but Gabriel Byrne and I sat and talked for a good 20 minutes and we talked about um Filmmaking in general Like I've always learned If you meet a celebrity Don't ask about themselves So I spent a long time Before I actually brought up The usual suspects Because I was working at MGM And I mentioned that something I get a lot of work A lot of orders for that movie And we just went back and forth And he was talking about Oh could they make this movie nowadays Could they make this movie And it was so good And so there was like A little party mixer After the screening was over And so everyone's doing that Everyone's getting drinks They're talking to the, the creator of Night Flight, who was there, and then Michael DeBar, And Gabriel Byrne and I are just sitting in the last row of the theater talking. And then finally, Michael comes over and was like, you know, Gabriel, what are you doing over here? We're supposed to be partying. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I'm keeping you from this. And Gabriel introduces me to Michael. and And so I'm kind of standing there by myself, I'd come by myself, and I was like, all right, I, I don't really... Were you really...
0: dancing with yourself?
1: Yes, I was dancing with myself. And I, I was trying to figure out, like, okay, how much longer do I want to stick around here? It's already been an awesome night. I got to talk to Gabriel Byrne. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to go say goodbye. And I walked over to him, and, and I, I said, you know, I'm going to take off. I shook his hand, and I never forget, he said, he said, Mike, you know, there's a lot of really good movies coming up at this theater. I, I hope I see you around. I'm like, yes, Gabriel Byrne. I hope I see you around at the theater. I never saw him again.
0: So if you do run into him at the theater you'll be able to say, Gabriel Byrne, hello again.
1: Do we have, do we still have the cricket noise? I think we still have that on, on, on file somewhere. We have to drop that in there. All right, all right. Um, so, n- n- this, I you know, let, this episode's over. Let's just end it. Uh, we'll give you a brief preview of next episode. We finally have not one, but two movies that both cross over $100 million at the box office. Touchstone has... Hit the big time. For my partner, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. My name is Mike DeKalb. I'm also on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. You can find Out of Touchstone on Twitter at Out of Touchstone. We are also available via email, outoftouchstone at gmail.com. outoftouchstone.com is the website. Uh, let's talk about some good movies next, next time out, Chad. We
2: wouldn't want to damage your reputation.
1: <laughs> this is Out of Touchstone. And we are out of time. Out of,
2: touch. Out, of touch. out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you. Good night.